Well, good morning. It's a little, little different start to the day having Corey read our text, but I wanted to give us the broader context of the song of Zechariah as we jump in to looking at the second ever Christmas carol sung. Last week was Mary's song, this week Zechariah's song, and uh, so I'm excited to, to jump in today. Uh, I got a question as we jump in. Uh, when you take a flight, maybe for vacation or you take a flight on a business trip, anyone uh, like purposefully select the window seat? Yeah, a few of you are like, yes, I do that. And others are like, no, that's why I take medicine to get away from the window seat, right? Um, well, I love the window seat. I, personally, I love the window seat. It's, it's one of these things where it's sort of mid-flight. I love to open the window and then look down over the land that I'm flying over. It's one of these moments that always sort of strikes me. Man, things are small down there from way up here, you know? Sort of an obvious state of the obvious. I'm, I'm Captain Obvious, so welcome. Nice to meet you today. Um, but, but I love looking at that because for all the things that feel so big down here, for all the things that feel so important and insurmountable, for all the, the things, all the people that cause us to have fear, you look down over from that vantage point and you go, what am I so worried about? What am I so afraid of? Things are actually, when you see them from bird's eye view, aren't that big after all. And everything's going to be okay. And that person I'm afraid of from up here is actually really small. Maybe that can frame up the way I think about them and myself the next time I see them. You know, I, I love getting that bird's eye view. When you change your perspective, there's a whole new experience in life. When you change your perspective, it frames up and reframes what's actually real and what's going on in different moments. As much as things down here look different from uh, the view of things up there, the same thing is true when we experience our life down here from a different perspective when we take on someone else's view. So, so here's what I mean by that. I'm a, I'm a dad of four kids. Um, my oldest is seven, the next is five, then three, and then a year and a half. My house is crazy, right? The, hint, the Kinser house is crazy, always swirling with activity. And so when I come home after a long day at the office, there's many nights where after I get the brigade of kids coming at me and like screaming daddy and all this kind of stuff, that's a beautiful moment. But then when that subsides, I, I want to go to my chair <laughs> and I want to sit down and I want to just sort of rule my house from my chair from the rest of the evening, right? Like I'm an old man, I have a chair. <laughs> and, and here's the thing about that. There's nothing wrong with that from sitting in your chair or sitting from a place to rest from a long day. My kids will know that I'm home. My kids will know that I'm present. My kids will have an experience of me and my love for them by the way I'm speaking to them, by the way we're watching TV together, or by the way we're just talking about the day from my chair. But I've noticed over time that there's an entirely different experience that happens when you change perspective. When I stand up from my chair and I make a move to get on the floor, the whole room changes. Like there's an atmospheric difference that happens in my house. Meteorologists would be fascinated with the pressure that's being either coming to or being alleviated from my room, however that would work, right? But there's a difference in the room. All of a sudden, the faces of my kids begin to change. Their smiles broaden when I start to build a block tower with them or when I hop in the princess house with my daughters or like every time I get on the floor, my oldest lives, she's seven, she goes, it's floor time, right? Like she knows, like something's about to happen. Dad got down here with us, you know? So they would know from my chair, I love them. They would know from my chair, I'm present there with them. They would feel meaningfully. They would know all sorts of things about me as their protector and provider and the kind of marriage their mom and I have and the kind of home we're building out for them. They would know all kinds of things from my chair. 
But there's something different that happens when I stand up and I make a move to close the gap from chair to floor. He's with us. He's here. He's on my level. He has dignified me in some ways, right? He's on my level. When I lay down my rights to father from the chair and I get down on the floor, something changes. Something changes. And this is what's happening at Christmas. I talk about that because this is what's happening at Christmas. There's a change in perspective. This is what's happening in Jesus. God has joined us on the floor. Christmas is shocking. God has joined us on the floor to draw us to his side. Jesus means, Jesus, the son of God, means that God is not a flyover king. He's not a 30,000 foot king. Sure, he reigns from on high, but he's also stood up from his chair to close the gap from throne to earth, right? He's joined us on the floor. He's not looking down on us, waiting for us to figure it all out and pull our lives together. The incarnation of Jesus means, right? It means that God is committed to being close to us without discrimination. The incarnation means that God is committed to being close. And so I talk about that because this is the tone and this is the texture of what's coming forward in Zechariah's song. This is a song of a man who's been shut up inside the walls and the doors of his own doubts in the midst of his own anxieties and unmet and unfulfilled dreams. This is a man who's been buried in his own chest, but all of a sudden in this song, his chin has been lifted and his perspective has changed. This is a song for those, in case you're wondering kind of, you know, who this song goes out to, if this was like a total request live moment. This song goes out to those who are grappling with doubt. This song goes out to those who are feeling the wakes of bitterness in their chest. This song goes out to those who have years of unmet and unfulfilled dreams. And so without rehearsing so much of what Corey read through in the narrative of Zechariah, it's important to kind of have the context of where this song is coming from, right? So Zechariah was a priest in the service of Israel. And he and his wife were old. It says they were advanced in years. They were beyond the age of childbearing. Like biologically, it wouldn't work that way for them at their age. This is why he had trouble believing the word of the angel. He, they were advanced in age. Like, hey, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore, you know, Gabriel. And, and so they had all kinds of angst and anxiety, years and years of praying to have a child. In those days, if you didn't have a child, you were viewed in society that something's wrong with you. You're being punished, you're an outcast, you're kind of weird. What's wrong with you that either you don't want kids or you can't have kids? Something's, God's punishing you in some way, right? This is why Elizabeth prays, God, thank you that you've come to me and you have, um, you have, you've helped me overcome the reproach of my people, right? She was disrespected. And so they had so many prayers for so many years, right? Struggling with infertility, struggling with miscarriage, over and over and over again, let down, disappointed, in pain. And then God comes to them with this word of a son. Zechariah can't believe it. He's like, there's no way this is gonna happen. You better give me some extra years of life because I'm already at granddaddy age and I'm about to be the father of a newborn. Like, I don't know how this is gonna work. So the angel mutes him. Can you imagine nine months watching your wife be pregnant? Nine months. And like you finally move from unbelief to belief and she's starting to show, you know, not just gain weight, but show, right? Watch that one. That one's a dangerous one to make a mistake on. <laughs> and, and so like, 
you're getting excited. Like the angel wasn't lying. This is for real. It's not just that I'm getting a son, but I also know that the angel said, this is the son who's gonna prepare the way of the Lord. The Messiah is coming and my son's gonna have part in his ministry. This is not just a son. This is like John the Baptist, right? (laughs) And you're going to like wedding showers and people are giving you gifts and you're mute and you can't say anything. And so it's just easy to leave early, I guess, right? Like I can't talk, I'll just see you later. But then your son comes and he says, no, we're not gonna call him Zechariah after me. He's one unto the Lord. The angel has commanded from God on high that he be called John. He's gonna be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so he declares his name will be John. And it says at that moment, his lips are loosed and he begins to sing. And this is the context of our song today. And so there's a couple of things I want us to see from what Zechariah sings at this moment of deliverance, right? The first thing is this, Christmas is a surprise visitation. Christmas is a surprise visitation. The second thing is that Christmas visits us in our burdens. Christmas is a surprise visitation and it visits us in our burdens. Look at the first one. Look back at verse 67, the surprise visitation. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, stop there for a second, skip down to 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Zechariah begins his song at the very place Mary ends her song last week. Mary ends, the last lyric of her song was that God is fulfilling the promise that he spoke to Abraham and his offspring forever. She's talking about the fact that this is a promise that God had sent forward from Genesis chapter three, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the fathers of the Old Testament. And now we're seeing it fulfilled in Jesus. And then even in John the Baptist preparing the way. And Zechariah begins his song with that same thing. This is something we've been hearing about forever. God is fulfilling his word. This must've been a wild moment. This, I mean, just putting myself in the story, this must've been a wild moment in history for the people of Israel. Because you think about the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four. So if we were to roll back, um, we're in the book of Luke. So Mark is before this and then Matthew and then Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament. Before this moment, the last time they had heard from God was 400 years ago. 400 years, silent after the last words of Malachi. No new word from God, no fulfilled word from God, no new promises from God. The only thing the nation of Israel had was just hanging on the promise that he said through the the books of the Old Testament, he's not gonna leave us. We're just hoping that's true because it's been 400 years since we last heard from him. This must've been a wild moment. If you go back to the look at the last words of Malachi chapter four, they actually match up directly with the word of the angel to John that he was gonna come with one of a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah. This must've been a wild moment. So he opens his song and look at what he says, the first words, blessed be the Lord God of Israel and pause here for God has visited. God has visited. Now here's why I make mention of that. This is language that we typically kind of casually just pass over. Like, oh yeah, of course, I get it. Like I'm familiar with the Christmas story, God has visited. Or that we read it with a little bit of entitlement about us. Like, well, it's about time that God's visited. It's been 400 years. It's been on his to-do list like forever. Like finally, I'm glad you got around to it, God. 
But don't let your familiarity and don't let your sense of entitlement hijack for you the wildness of what's, been, what's being said and God has made a visit. Here's what I mean. All through the Old Testament, you would hear this language and you would see this refrain, the coming day of the Lord. The, the coming day of the Lord. They knew this day was coming. They knew a visit was coming. But for the people of Israel, the day that God would visit, it would be a day of blessing and restoration and redemption for Israel, but for the rest of the world, a day of judgment. The day of the Lord was a day of dread. The visitation of God was a day of tremors and of fear for all except Israel in their minds. Now you can hear that and you go, well, that's archaic. That's ridiculous. Of of course, it's not gonna happen that way. But before you jump to that conclusion, the popular thought of the day is actually somewhat reasonable. Here's what I mean. When you consider our brokenness, when you consider our sin and our rebellion up next to the holiness of God, so just think with this for a second. When you consider all the ways that we live in deception, all the ways that we make a mockery of God's authority, all the power plays that are expressed in relationships all around us, all the ways that we've accumulated addictions for ourselves to play God for ourselves, to attempt to satisfy against his authority, saying, regardless of what you say, God, I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want, and just the way I want. This is my life. When you consider all of our sinfulness up next to God's holiness, and then you consider his kindness to withhold judgment up to now, when you consider all of that, it's actually not so unreasonable to think that a visitation from God wouldn't go so well for us. If God were to have come in his visitation and said, I'm going to bring judgment, it would have been justifiable and he'd be entirely good and righteous to do so. Entirely good and righteous to do so. And yet the thrill of what Zechariah is singing is that this is a visitation. God's actually doing it. He's fulfilling the promise, but it's a visitation of a certain kind. It's bigger than the fulfillment of a promise. Look back at 68 and notice what comes with this vision, this this visitation. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and how, how? And he has redeemed his people and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He sings that this is a visitation of redemption. This is a surprise visitation. We didn't see this kind of visitation coming. We saw a visitation of judgment and of authority and of righteousness, but yet we get a visitation of redemption. We get a visitation of redemption with healing and forgiveness and second chances upon second chances upon second chances. This is why in the assurance we read, Jesus has come and we received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And notice in this passage who the one is that brings redemption easy answer, but it's crucial to know it's God. Like he's the one that brings redemption. I I mentioned this because very often in our lives, we assume that redemption leans on us. Like we're, we're responsible to redeem stuff in our life, right? So like if I've made a wrong, if I've failed in a way, if I've committed a wrong against someone or even against God, that I'm responsible for righting my wrongs. I'm responsible for doing this. I think about my own story this week. I was considering just my own track record of fatherlessness in my family and multiple divorce and all these things. Much of my marriage and early fatherhood, I have lived with this idea that 
I now, as a dad, am responsible to redeem what fatherhood looks like in my line. I'm responsible to be a dad like I never had or be a dad like those in my line never were or even be a husband of faithfulness. I'm responsible to redeem what it is to be a husband in the Kinsler line. And that's been like the source of a lot of anxiety for me is though I'm the one responsible to redeem stuff. I'm the one responsible to right wrongs. Listen, here's what's so beautiful about God bringing redemption. I don't redeem anything. You don't redeem anything. Redemption isn't on us. We're the ones that need redeemed. I need redemption. He brings, now I'm not saying that redemption's on him, so therefore I'm not responsible for my actions or I don't take responsibility for stuff. What it means though, is I don't lay claim to redemption. The man of redemption lays claim on me. Lays claim on me. And so just so we're not throwing around a churchy word today, what is redemption, right? Here's what redemption is. Redemption means that our lives and our sins are costly, but someone else has paid the price. Redemption means that for those things in your life that you fear are gonna define you or those things in your life that you fear you're never gonna overcome, redemption means that they do not and will not get the last word. There is a higher verdict and he declares restored, redeemed. Redemption means that there is a judgment. You've gotta hear this. There is a judgment to face before the throne of God. Redemption means someone else has stepped in and taken judgment. Someone else has stepped in to take judgment in your place. And so this is why Zechariah sings, and here's why I pause, because God has visited. God has visited. The Most High has like barged his way into the room with redemption, with redemption. But notice before we move on, one more thing here, lest we pass over it, it's too good. Verse 69 says, it's not just with redemption, but look at what it says. He's visited and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, what does this mean? This is not a phrase that we like ever use, ever, right? He has raised up a horn of salvation. This is the central lyric to this song. Like the whole song hangs on this lyric. This is what the surprise visitation is all about. So to raise up a horn is an act of warfare. It's an act of warfare. He, he's not talking about a musical instrument here. Like no one ever cheered when someone raises the trumpet, right? Like that's not what happens. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm in band. Yes, we do. <laughs> you, you don't, <laughs> you don't. He's talking about an animal horn. And so in the Old Testament, this is about warfare. Horns were used as deadly weapons in combat. In their agrarian society, they would have had in mind the horn of a wild ox. It's a both a sign of power and of dread for their enemies. Psalm 92 speaks of this. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish and all evildoers shall be scattered Verse 10, but you have exalted my horn, right? Like that of a wild ox. The idea here is that God has raised up my cause and he's now stood up to take action against all opposition. When God raises up a horn, he's declaring war. And so when Zechariah pulls this imagery and sings that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, 
He's singing that Jesus is the horn that God is raising up. This is a declaration of warfare against anything that would ever stand in our way from getting to God or God getting to us. Jesus is the horn that is raised up to strike a death blow to Satan, our enemy. Jesus is the horn that is raised up to make a violent and vicious and victorious strike against our sin and against the sting of death. And so God, he makes a visitation, a visitation of redemption, but it's also Christmas is warfare. The inbreaking of Jesus is war, stopping at nothing until his people are secure and safe in his arms. As I was looking at this, I, I um, read a sermon by Pastor John Piper kind of in preparation, and, and he had this quote that's kind of obscure, but it was too great not to mention. It'll be on the screen. This is the imagery of the horn. Scriptures say that Satan may be a, war, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but none of those who take refuge in Christ the horn of our salvation, can he destroy? If I were an artist, I would paint for my home a special Christmas painting and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. The scene would be of a distant hill at dawn and the sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shoot up and out of the picture. And all alone, silhouetted on the hill, at the center of the picture, very dark, is a magnificent wild ox standing with his back seven feet tall, the crown of his head, nine feet tall. On both sides of his head is a horn curving out and up, six feet long, 12 inches thick at its base. He stands there sovereign and serene. He faces the Southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked and impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion, dead. Our King comes in victory our king comes to make war that we might be his in peace. And so blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Christmas is a surprise visitation, but lastly today, Christmas visits us in our burdens. And here's what's fascinating about this song. So it begins with all of this volume. You can imagine a song being performed all this volume about visitation and redemption and warfare. But then where this song slides into is of tenderness and of mercy. And he ends the song by answering the who question, right? Who? So God's visiting. God's bringing redemption. God is raising up the deadly weapon of a horn for his people. But who gets all this? Like who's the one who is the benefactor of this warfare. Look at 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and, to and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I mentioned this last week, but the Christmas narrative is shocking. Like it is scandalous and shocking and here's what I find so amazing about it. All the people who would assume that they've been bypassed, all the people who would assume that God has abandoned them, all the people who would assume that somehow the reason that things are going wrong in their life is because of some sort of way that God is punishing them, we're all those kinds of people. 
all the people who would assume abandonment or punishment and that Christmas isn't for them, they are precisely, we are precisely the people that Christmas is for. Like the people who assume it's not for me, it's like, no, it's for you. It's precisely for you because you think it's not for you. It's for you. And verse 79 tells us who God visits. He says, he visits those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So remember who's singing this song. This is Zechariah. This is Zechariah. He's familiar with who he's singing about. He was an old man. He was cynical and he was hanging on faith by a thread because of years of unfulfilled dreams, struggling with infertility and miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. In those days, they didn't have the medicinal knowledge we have today. There was probably difficulty in being able to tell he and Elizabeth, sorry, there's something wrong with how this is going down. You're not gonna be able to have kids. And so they would have found that out through multiple miscarriages, years of infertility. Don't forget that he was muted by the angel because he carried the pain and disappointments of all this and it led him into unbelief. He was rolling in the temple to light the incense, probably wondering, why am I even doing this? I've prayed and it doesn't work. He's probably just trying to finish his life without anybody noticing. So he struggles with unbelief. The pain and resentment that he wore in his sleeve, it ran deep in his soul. There were many priests that were serving in the temple that God could have come with this word. There were other priests who had marriages that were fertile and they could have kids and he could have come to them and delivered this word. He could have chosen someone else to be the father and mother of John the Baptist, but he chose this priest, this disenchanted, this disillusioned, this doubting, this skeptical, this cynical priest. He chose him. And if that's you today, you gotta hear what this song is saying to you. You're in the room today and you're like, man, that's, that's my story. That's our story. God has not left you. If you're here today and you're struggling with miscarriage and infertility, I've, I've been here a year and a half and I, I've gotten to know a lot of stories personally in this room. This is present, especially with a church full of young, young couples, young families. This is common, man. And you're not alone. And if you're wondering if God has dropped you off, the song declares he hasn't. Christmas means Emmanuel, God with, with us. He's near to the brokenhearted. Also, if, if you're here and you, and you think that for whatever reason, maybe, you've, maybe it's not miscarriage or infertility, maybe, maybe you're suffering the loss of a loved one or you're having relational tension or losses of relationship, or, or maybe it's like a loss of a job or other dreams, and, and you're assuming that maybe this stuff is happening because I'm being punished, can I just say that karma is a lie from the pit of hell, right? Karma is absolutely crushed at the cross of the horn of our salvation. There is no more punishment to bear. He bore it. So when things are busted in your life, it's not punishment. It's time to mourn, and, and we'll talk about that just as we end here today. God is... God is not holding out on you. That's the last thing I'd want you to know. God is not holding out on you. The scriptures are really clear. He withholds no good thing from his people. And so I don't say those things tritely to kind of end this message. I don't kind of just put that out there and kind of move on and get up. No, there's no just getting over that. 
One of the beautiful things about Jesus when he shows up to the death of Lazarus, his friend, his sisters Mary and Martha were standing there crying over the loss of their brother. And the first thing Jesus does is not whip out Messiah powers. The first thing he does is put his arm around them and weep. Jesus sees, he knows, he doesn't withhold, he doesn't punish. And so this text says that a light has shined, a way of peace has been made known. And it's not suggesting that life now should just be chipper, right? Because Zechariah got a son, but there's others who are still barren. So it's not just saying that that life should be chipper now. And all of a sudden we like, it really is silver bells. No, what this means, a light has shined and a peace has been made known is not a cheap promise. Whatever you're walking in, you'll never be left. You'll never be dropped off and you'll never be neglected. And so you're saying, well, then why do I experience what I experience if that's true? I I don't know. I don't know. I know that we live in a busted and fallen world and things don't look like they ought. But what I do know is that God hasn't left us to this. And even though we feel the pain today, it won't be this way forever. It won't be this way forever. One thing I do know as we close is that not a single tear that you shed goes unnoticed by Jesus. And there will come a day when new songs will rise up in your heart. I don't know when, but I do know that there will come a day when new songs will rise in your heart. 